listening to the official podcast of Oasis Community Church, where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and anything's possible. If you'd like to learn more about Oasis, request prayer, or get in touch with a pastor, visit our website at oasischurch.org. Enjoy the podcast. Good morning, everyone. It's good to be back with you and good to be continuing our series, A More Christ-Like God. Like, all my life, I've been told that I need to be more Christ-like. And I can appreciate that. Um, Sometimes our words carry some baggage, and it gets hard to use those words kind of again and again in the future. Um, There's lots of examples of that, but sometimes even the word Christian has, has come to mean certain things that I don't necessarily mean when I say I'm Christian. And I want to say it was maybe 15 or 20 years ago, it became popular, at least in the circles that I ran in, to call ourselves Christ followers. Like we like that term, Christ follower. Somehow it meant, it had an idea that we were active, that we were 100% kind of following Jesus. You know, we wanted to say that we were part of a relationship, not simply part of a religion. And that language of being more Christ-like was at the center of how we understood ourselves. So if we talk about a series and we name the series a more Christ-like God, what we're saying is we need to understand that God is like Christ. Like God is not like something different than Christ. Christ is, as we've said these last couple of weeks, the fullest and truest revelation of who God is. He is the very word of God. Paul says he, he is the image of God and contains the fullness of God. And as we quoted last week, the book of Hebrews says he is the perfect mirror reflection of who God is. But John tells us that God is love. And again, we've talked about, well, what is love? Because I can say, as I've said, I love my wife, I love my dog, I love ice cream, I love college football. But hopefully I mean something different in those sentences when I use the word love. And so we're going to lean on uh, some teachings this morning of C.S. Lewis. So here's a picture of C.S. Lewis. I remember posting this on my um, social media platform years ago. And someone said, oh, is that your dad? <laughs> like, nope, that's C.S. Lewis. And uh, I, I was, one day I was trying to tell Chris Green, our friend who, who speaks with us uh, a lot, Chris, I'm, I'm, I really love C.S. Lewis. I'm, I'm like, really, I think he's, he's great. He's like, me too. I'm like, I don't know if you understand. I'm like, I really think he's so, so helpful. He's like, Robbie, my son is named Clive after Clive Staples Lewis. <laughs> I'm like, okay, you win. It wasn't a competition. (laughs) But yeah, uh, Clive Green, um, whom we also love, um, is named after C.S. Lewis. So Lewis, as you know, was an English teacher at Oxford University. But he was a very kind of public theologian. And some 60, no, 70 now, I guess, years ago, He had a radio show, and there were 10 episodes where he talked about love. Uh, He would later publish it as a book called The Four Loves. 
Um, I think the original radio show was in 10 episodes, but you can find it on YouTube, and I would encourage you to watch it. On YouTube, they've broken it into four sections, uh, one for each of the Greek uh, words for love. So let's take a look at these. So there are four words for love in the Greek language. And I might actually start with this caveat. These four words for love, and uh, Lewis does a beautiful explanation as to what they are, I think and it's very, very helpful. But if you happen to be one of those uh, people who really like to study scripture and you get out your concordance and you look up the Greek word, the Greek New Testament doesn't necessarily use them in a very technical sense. So it's not every time it says agape, it means one thing, and every time it says uh, philea, it means an, another, right? So all that to say, <clears throat> the Bible doesn't necessarily use them in this technical sense, but there is a larger sense in which there's something to learn from the different words used for love in the Greek language. So the first one, as you can see, is storge. And we might better translate it affection. It's, it's familial. It's what we're familiar with. It's the love uh, that a mother has for her newborn baby. It's a love that you have for your family. It's a love that you can also have for just things that you are familiar with. Like you might like the way we serve uh, communion at the church. You're familiar with it. You can, you can kind of love it. So it's, a, it's a, a love that you could have for your dog. It's a love your dog could have for you. Um, Lots of love, we can kind of point to the time where it began. But, but storge is more so that it seems to have always been with us. And we have a hard time pinpointing when it began because it just grew out of our, out of our familial relationships. Uh, whether that's actually our families or just the things that we are, we're used to, that we like. This is a very natural form of love. This is something that we all have. It can sometimes, you know, be thwarted or it can sometimes be warped or deformed in certain ways that it doesn't function well and kind of our egos get in the way and it can be self-serving. We can want to be loved in ways that we're not or we can try and love in ways that others don't. But at its best, at its most natural way, this is a very kind of um, helpful way that kind of God has made us. The next is uh, philia. And philia is kind of friendship. So this, this is a, a love that's also uh, very natural. It just kind of happens in the world. And it's the love that kind of grows not just from kind of familiarity, but kind of grows through kind of deep friendship. Like we use those terms in our social media circles, right? I have whatever thousands of Facebook friends, but I don't really know them all. <laughs> Just somebody knew somebody and they said, hey, well, you want to be friends? Very interesting choice that Zuckerberg and the others, whoever designed that thing, chose, right? Although in some ways, I think it might be better than what's on Instagram or Twitter, because then it's just called followers. Now, I don't even need to be friends with you. I just need you to follow me. <laughs> a little more unhealthy, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, but, but friendship, we, we have these. And, like, and we have a lot of acquaintances, generally. There's a lot of folks we know. We could call them by name. But friends, 
Friendship, I think, is measured, and I think we all know this. Friendship is measured not necessarily by the good times, but by the hard times. Your friends aren't just those who you kind of party with. Hey, we're having a cookout. Why don't you come over? Friends are those that you can call when things go wrong. Or better yet, friends are those who call you when things go wrong. And that, too, is a gift of God and something we can celebrate and something we can practice. Eros is kind of romantic love. And on an interesting piece of trivia here, the New Testament never uses this word for love. I guess the New Testament's never talking about eros. But eros is that kind of romantic love. It's the, it's the love that kind of two people have with each other when they're in a romantic relationship. And all of these, again, are natural. I think all of these are kind of God-given. And these are just ways to talk about how we live with each other. But then there's this fourth way. It's called agape. Agape is... The, the name of the word for love about God's love for us and our love for each other. Now, sometimes I hear agape described as just unconditional love, as though it's a love that's reserved just for what God does to people or to creation. But I think that's a misunderstanding. That's not how the Greeks were using it, or at least not especially how the Greek Christians uh, were using it. It is both a description of God's love for us and a description of our love for each other. So we just uh, played this video, uh, that, that beautiful voice kind of reading 1 Corinthians 13. I think it might be the same voice that tells the, the Dr. Seuss story of the Grinch to, uh, stealing Christmas. At least it sounded really familiar to me. I'm not sure. But I want us to, I want us to look again at this passage in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient, love is kind, love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Now, I'm going to ask you a question, and this is not rhetorical. I actually, I actually want you to answer. I know you've all heard that passage. You've probably heard it a lot. And there's a particular context that we often read this 1 Corinthians 13 chapter on love. And where do you often hear those? Weddings. Weddings. Very good. We didn't even practice that. That was really well done. So I'll say this. On the one hand, I think it's a fine passage of scripture to read at weddings. And if I was going to marry you and you wanted that passage read, I wouldn't object. On the other hand, when Paul talks about love this way, he's not talking about a wedding. He's not talking about a marriage. Paul knows how to talk about weddings and Paul knows how to talk about marriage. In fact, Paul had already talked about marriage in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, he's not talking about some kind of special love that's hard to find, that's some high bar, almost unachievable, but if you find it, and if you get there, and if you can go that high, then you should marry that person. 
Rather, this is not only is this not a high bar for Paul, this is a low bar. This is his expectation for how we treat everyone in here. This is what he's saying is the standard for Christian fellowship. Like, this is how we love each other. This is how we relate to one another. Jesus will tell his disciples, this is how the world will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And in fact, a better translation might say, if you have love for one another. And I like it. I like it, one, because I think it is the best translation. But I like it because he has just talked about how God loves him and how he loves God and how he loves us. And then he's talking about giving that love to us so that now we have it. And we don't just have that love for Jesus, but we have that love so that now we can love one another with that love. So that's the standard for who we are. Paul's statement on love. So what then does love have to do with the cross? Like we titled the sermon today, a a cross-shaped love. But what is a cross-shaped love? Well, I think we heard this too, and we heard this from the passage in 1 John. What is a cross-shaped love? It's this. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. We know love by this, that he laid his life down for us, and that we ought to lay our lives down for one another. That's, that's who we are. We are the ones whom has been loved. And we are the ones who now love in that same way. We have, this is how they will know that you are my disciples, that you have love. It's the love we've been given. And now it's the love that we share. That is a cross-shaped love. And that's a tough one, friends. That's not the one who loves you simply as a friend because you won the lottery and now you have friends, right? It's not the one who says, hey, man, I really like your new car. Maybe I can come and drive it sometime. (laughs) And whether it's a new car or, Danny, an old car. (laughs) But it's the love that is sacrificial, so this is another way to say it, this, this idea of a cross-shaped love. And this might sound controversial, but it's actually not. We just need to hear it. Jesus didn't die on the cross, so we wouldn't have to. Jesus died on the cross to show us how to. When Jesus dies on the cross, he's just sacrificially giving his life for others. And in doing so, he's showing us how we have to live. Listen to what Jesus says to his disciples. If you want to be my disciple, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. 
This is the way of Jesus Christ. It is a sacrificial way. Paul will say this too in various ways. He'll say, um, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Or elsewhere he'll say, um, it is not I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. Like what God is calling us to is to be more Christ-like. And to be more Christ-like is to be more like God. But to be like God is to be one who dies for others. The one who gives for others. The one who forgives others. That it's not just a mechanism by which we're saved. It's the very shape into which we are being saved. Like what does it mean to be saved or to be rescued? It means to become like Jesus. And Jesus shows us the way to be like Jesus and the fact that he dies on the cross for the sake of others. That, I think, is a cross-shaped love. So if we look even more closely at the cross then and we see the cross as the revelation of love, I think we see these three things. Cross-shaped love is self-giving, it is radically forgiving, and it is co-suffering love. It's self-giving. Like, I can reach in my pocket and, and give you some money. But to give of myself, to kind of put myself at risk, to put myself on the line, to be vulnerable with you, with my own kind of hopes and fears, to be present with you at the times, at hard times, but also good times, right? It's the, it's the gift of those things. It's the very gift of ourselves. And radically forgiving. When Jesus was dying on a cross, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. If Jesus is forgiving the people who've just beaten him and have nailed him to a tree, then Jesus is going to forgive you. I mean, what do you think you can do to him? Beat him and kill him? I mean, even if you do that, he says, forgive them. It is a radical forgiveness. And that's who we serve. That's who God is. The more Christ-like God, we're not saying that God needs to become more Christ-like. We're saying that who God truly is, is like Christ. And if we imagine somehow that God is different than that, then it's our imagination that's wrong. It's this is who God is. Self-giving, radically forgiving, co-suffering love. He's with us. When we hurt, he hurts. And we do hurt, and that, that's problematic. It's troublesome, right? It makes it hard sometimes for us to believe in God because of how much hurt we have. We're going to look at that next week. God loves us and stuff happens. 
There's other words you can use there for stuff. I, I, I cleanse that a bit for, for Sunday morning. <laughs> Both of those things are true, though. God does love us, and stuff does happen. And we'll talk, we'll talk more about that next week. As we, as we come towards the close, I want to talk a little bit more, again, just about the cross. Because the cross was a Roman torture device. The cross was used to execute, but the cross was also used to punish. Right? The, the Romans used the cross because they wanted other people to see this is what happens when you rebel against Rome. It was, it was a deterrent, a punishment, a torture, an execution. And if we look at the cross and that's what we see, we'll see a realistic thing that happened. But if we only have eyes to see that, we won't see everything we need to see. Because in reality, something else was happening. And this gets displayed in a couple of different ways. Not all the time, but particularly in the West, in Western art, we focus in on the gruesomeness sometimes, the suffering of the cross. But in Eastern art, they're focusing in on the spiritual reality of the cross. That is, that something more was taking place there. You know, uh, Mel Gibson's uh, Passion, which was, came out a number of years ago, is a big epic film. I mean, it was epic, but I found the, the film troublesome because the way it told the story, it seemed to glorify the suffering itself. Like, suffering is what matters. Suffering is not what matters. There's no glory in suffering. It's who suffered. Like, if Jesus had been beaten ten more times, that wouldn't have made our salvation more real. Right? If Jesus hadn't been beaten but had just been crucified, that wouldn't make our suffering less real. It's not, a, it's not about the actual pain. It's about the one who suffered. And so here's a couple of pictures. Here's one. <clears throat> and I think this represents <clears throat> kind of the, the realistic look at what a crucifixion was like. And this certainly is part of the story. When you see this, what are your thoughts? What comes to mind? Anything? Kind of hard to put into words. Yeah? Shame. Shame. Yeah, I think, I think that does. That's, that's very perceptive. Here's another one. Let's take a look at this one. What are your thoughts here? Loneliness? Agony? Thanks. These are pictures, I think, again, that look at the, the physical reality as to what was taking place. I want you to look at this kind of third one. A little harder to make out, perhaps. Hopefully it's clear enough on the screen. But there are characters in this story are in this picture that weren't in the previous ones. Say again? 
the angels. And so something else is happening more than what you can see or more than what you can see with your physical eyes. One way to think about it is this. And again, both of these I think are legitimate. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it often focus on the cross as, as the humility of Christ. And it will focus on the resurrection as the vindication of Christ. So Christ suffers and then there's a vindication. I think Matthew, Mark, and Luke all kind of tell the story that way. But John tells the story in a way that I think fits this picture better. John tells the story so that Jesus is actually glorified on the cross. And the resurrection is a revelation that that glory is none other than the glory of God. One last picture here. Partially because I think this is a little less realistic. You can really see at this point, I think, what I'm trying to get at. That the artist is trying to point kind of beyond the, the physical particularities of that day into the spiritual reality of what Jesus was doing. This was no defeat. This was a victory. You see Jesus here, he's kind of crucified amongst the stars. The crucifixion of Jesus is not just saving a few people. It's saving the whole cosmos. Jesus is here and you, its focus is not just on the particular, again, uh, pain or agony of the day. And I, I don't know if you can make it out, but beneath Jesus' feet is a tomb and in the tomb is a skull and crossbones, right? He's over death. The crucifixion doesn't just overcome sin, it overcomes death. It overcomes everything that would be harmful to creation, everything that would be harmful to you. Because God loves. Because God is love. Because God so loved that he gave, that he died. We'll wrap up coming back around to C.S. Lewis. As again, I'm a big fan of Lewis and I think what he had to write, um, you know, in terms of nonfiction about religion, Christianity is all very good. His mere Christianity and his four loves and his surprised by joy. But I think what Lewis is known most for and maybe what I appreciate most about him is actually his fiction. And not just his adult fiction like Till We Have Faces and the Space Trilogy, but his children's fiction. His, his also popular series, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, I think that first volume, which is that, is that title, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, tells the story that I'm trying to tell here so, so well. So, you know, last week I had a few things to say about Santa Claus. I, maybe I should apologize for some of that. I'm not sure. I mean, I still believe what I said. <laughs> this week I'm going to tell you how the line, the witch, and the wardrobe ends. So just in case you've always been planning on reading it in Hatton, uh, sorry. Spoiler alert. So in the story, the story is told about these four children 
whose names I'm not going to get right, um, Edmund and Lucy and Peter and Susan, thanks. Well read, I appreciate that. So Edmund's this little boy, and he's been tempted, right? He's, he's been wooed by the wicked witch. And he's given in to his temptation. And now there's going to be punishment for that, right? And it's, it's a ridiculous thing, really. I think he ate some, like, dessert or something, right? Turkish delight. Yeah. Man, I, I'm preaching to a bunch of Lewis aficionados. <laughs> So, so now the witch is like, Edmund, you're going to have to pay a price. And Aslan, right, the lion comes, and he is going to stay in kind of Edmund's stead. And the witch is like, this is the stone table. And the law of the stone table is there has to be a life given. And so as opposed to Edmund's life being given... Aslan's life is going to be given. It is the law of the stone table. And so they shave his mane. They humiliate him. They beat him, right? This is the, the story as told by the synoptic evangelists, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And he dies. Aslan, the king, the lion, dies. But that's not the end of the story. Because there is a greater law than the law of the stone table. And the greater law than the law of the stone table is the law of love. The law of love is greater than the law of the stone table. But what we have to hear as Lewis tells the story is not that, that Aslan... The, the rule of Aslan or the law of Aslan, Aslan the lion, right? He's Christ. It's not his law that said there had to be someone to die. It was the witch's law that said there had to be someone to die. And it's the stone table itself, the law that says there has to be death, is what gets broken in the story. The stone table at the end of the story is broken. That idea that there has to be death is broken. And it's broken by the one who says, we live by love. Our God is the God of life. He overcomes death. He's not the God of death. He's the God who, who kills death. In the book of Revelation, towards the end there, there's this great lake of fire and it destroys apparently those things which are thrown into it but the things that get thrown into it <laughs> you ready for this death and hell <laughs> of all the things to be thrown into the lake of fire but if you're asking me if I had to vote on what should be thrown into the lake of fire let's throw death in there <laughs> he has taken the keys of death and hell Oh, death, where is thy victory? Oh, grave, where is thy sting? This is the story of our God. And that's the one whom we serve. And that's the one I want you to know. 
because there are too many stories about our God that tell a story that's different than this one. And there are stories that fit. If you want to hear those stories, you need to go back and listen to last week's sermon about those false images of God. Because today, our focus is on the true image of God. And the true image of God is that God is love and that love is cross-shaped. We hope you were blessed by today's podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to support us, you can do so by subscribing wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can leave us a review on iTunes, and if you want to contribute to Oasis financially, you can go to oasischurch.org. May the Lord bless you and keep you, and may God's face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.